lesson this morning comes from John chapter 8. It's a familiar story, one that is not only widely known, but it is uh, well-loved. Uh, Jesus' encounter with a woman who had been caught in adultery and dragged before him uh, in order to trap him, uh, and yet a beautiful expression of grace. And while you're turning to that, before we begin our study, then, I just want to address what would be the purple elephant that is uh, before us in this text and acknowledge that this text, despite its being so well-known and well-loved, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And as much as it might be easy to just kind of bypass that, most of you are too smart, and the translators have made sure that I can't just pretend like it's not there, because in most of your Bibles, right across the top of the passage I'm about to read, it says, this passage was not found in the earliest manuscripts. So some of you may wonder, then why study it if its authenticity is in question and in doubt? And at the risk of at least taking the beginning part and turning it into a mere academic lesson, there are some very good reasons for us to not only study it, but to value this particular passage. Uh, one of which is we don't want to be a church that avoids the difficult questions uh, about the Bible because what happens when you do that is we begin to give reason for your tr uh, trust in the reliability of the scriptures to erode. And so we want to take that head on. And then further is that there are specific reasons why we do include this passage and celebrate it. Uh, first of all, it is rooted in John's whole purpose in writing this gospel. To the end of this gospel, and again at the end of his epistle, John says that the whole reason that he is writing these things and in this gospel is including these stories is so that we would know enough about this Jesus so that we would be able to believe in him, to recognize that he is the Messiah that God had promised and that God has sent. But John also says towards the end of this gospel is, and not just once, but says it twice, is that as great as these stories are that he has contained here in this gospel, Jesus did far more things and he taught far more than what is recorded here. In fact, he did and taught so much that it would be impossible to contain everything that he taught. And so even those who would be the most critical of this text being included in, in this place in, in the gospel would acknowledge that this story rings true of the type of things that Jesus would have done, how he would have taught, how he would have acted. We're not seeing anything new about Jesus, and we're not learning anything new. We're simply having what is true through this gospel, through all the New Testament, really through all the Bible, illustrated before us in a beautiful way. Another reason that we would recognize this as important to consider and to believe that this belongs in our canon is that the earliest church fathers uh, not only affirmed this uh, to be a true story, but they also uh, believed that this uh, was appropriately in place. Uh, Jerome, one of the early church fathers, who was the great, first great Bible translator, he took both the Greek and the Hebrew, translated it into Latin, which was the language of the educated masses in the uh, Roman world and also the language of politics, uh, he included this passage exactly where it is and considered it to be uh, authentic and appropriate and believed it to be written by the Apostle John exactly as it is. And Augustine, who was a contemporary of Jerome, who was also one of the greatest minds uh, in all of history, 
He not only believed that it was appropriate to have here, he believed that the earliest manuscripts actually did include this story in this particular place, and that in some cases, some of the early scribes that were a little bit overzealous and thought that Jesus was a little too easy on this woman, they chose to remove it from their particular manuscripts while other scribes uh, included it exactly as John had written it. And we don't know whether Augustine is right about that or not, but we do know this, is that in the manuscripts that we have from antiquity, this passage is included in the vast majority of all of the manuscripts exactly where it is today, and in others in, it's included, even if it's in a different location. And just so we also understand that the, the, the standards that are used in translating our Bibles and holding to it and how that compares to any other academic discipline. Uh, let me just share this with you. The, the Greek New Testament that is pretty standard, the one that I use, Camper uses, I'm sure Ken uses, it's, it's, it's very common, is a compilation of over 300 ancient manuscripts, the earliest of which date to the second century AD. Now compare that to other classics that are studied widely. And the best source for Aristotle to study his works is a, and published by Harvard because, you know, the, and, and so therefore has the academic uh, integrity that's involved with that. That is a compilation of five manuscripts, the earliest of which dates to the 10th century. In fact, the, the, the wealth of historical, reliable data for our Bibles is so great and so much greater than any other ancient discipline. That one Bible scholar, Bruce Metzger, teaches it, taught at Princeton uh, Seminary and Princeton University. He said the New Testament critical scholars are almost embarrassed by the wealth that they have of sources as compared to any other academic discipline. And so it's not a matter of, well, we just take the best of. The vast majority of these and oldest and going back to just one generation removed from when uh, people who walked with Jesus would have known, they, they included this text. They believed that this text was appropriate, the vast majority of those texts. And the final reason that I would include it this morning is simply because for as long as the church has had a Bible compiled, as long as there has been what is known as a canon, this story has been in this place and has been used by God to not only teach but to bless people. And so, again, with, uh, with some of those things to consider, if you have any other questions, I'd be happy to talk uh, with you. Um, but uh, if I go any further, um, what has already started as academic will just become even more so. Uh, but I do want us to enjoy this passage and not worry so much about the publisher's note because they need to do it for um, transparency, but it doesn't invalidate anything uh, that is recorded in our Bible. And so let's go to uh, this passage. Let's go to our God in prayer first, and then we'll consider the word. Father, we do pray as we consider your word this morning that you would speak to us. You would open our minds that we might see what is taking place as is recorded. But you would open our hearts as well, that we would be a people that not only learn and be puffed up in our understanding, but that we would see how you are speaking uh, to us individually and collectively, uh, that we may be shaped according to your purpose find the freedom that is secured by Christ and the joy that goes with it. Bless us this morning. And use us to be a blessing to others, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. As we come to the text, let's just remember the context as well. It's following the, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
Uh, people had been in Jerusalem for a week-long celebration, uh, and each of the days has particular highlights. And throughout the week, Jesus has been pointing to how each of these highlights that everybody had celebrated for generations actually pointed to him as the fulfillment of God's promise. And on the last day, the great day, which is actually the day before what's taking place in our text today, Jesus had declared, if anyone is thirsty, what he means by that is if anybody has any need in your life, let him come to me and drink. And you will find that you not only are find fulfillment, but you will have rivers of living water that will well up within and flow from you. Believe that we might have life. So it's with that context and that understanding we begin looking at our text, which you'll notice actually begins in 753 um, and continues through verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house. In other words, people had left the festival and started heading home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the next morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard him, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of our God. The story, again, is widely loved, and it is understandable as to why it would be dearly loved. We identify very much with this woman before who wouldn't identify with her. Nobody wants to be judged based on your failures, your mistakes, your sins, and certainly not to experience condemnation. But what we see in this particular passage is really a beautiful contrast. It's a contrast that is as stark as lightness and and darkness. It's a contrast between the ugliness of graceless religion and the beauty of the love of God that is experienced through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin, we we see very vividly the ugliness of graceless religion that is illustrated uh, in this particular passage. And we need to recognize at the same time that whenever a religion is mostly a matter of rules and regulation, and when the precepts of the system are seeming to be more important than the people to whom it is to be administered, It is a dark and it is a destructive thing. In fact, in cases, it's actually a demonic thing. And we don't need to use our imaginations to see what that might look like, and nor do we need to think back into uh, acts in history far, far removed. 
In fact, we see the ugliness of graceless religion in the smoldering fires and the collapsing towers of New York and the breached walls of the Pentagon as airplanes flew into them. It's left in such an indelible mark on our cultural psyche that we set a day apart, tomorrow actually, to remember this, what ugliness of zealot religiousness looks like. And for the past 16 years, our culture has been in debate as to whether or not this is perpetrated by all Muslims or just a bunch of lunatic Muslims. And we don't seem to have come to a resolution about that. But what we tend to miss, and what we cannot miss is this, is we see the ugliness of such a graceless religion that the people who perpetrated this thought that somehow they were going to honor God by destroying the very people that God had created after his own image. And we recognize that ugliness, but somehow we fail to miss that the ugliness of graceless Christianity is every bit as ugly as those burning buildings and people dying. As much as we hate to admit it, any honest reading of church history will remind us of a fair number of episodes that most of us wish that we could erase from the memories and pages of time. And we see that same ugliness here in the particular text before us. We see what graceless religion looks like, not necessarily in a national or religion versus religion, but in an interpersonal way. We see the key aspect of this is in the attitudes and the intent of the scribes and the Pharisees, which we particularly in our church, our denomination, or those of you who are here because you know that we are affiliated with a, we should be faithful and will be held account if we're not, as we take the word seriously. These are people like us. This was the Pharisees and the scribes, people who knew the word. They, you know, they dwelt in the, they, they knew, many of these scribes and Pharisees knew the word so well, they knew every bit of the Old Testament by heart. And yet they used their religion as something to further their cause and use people as mere pawns. We look at this passage, we see that this was a setup from the very beginning. In fact, John tells us that if we had any doubts. They were brought this woman and they were asking him questions to see if they could come up with some charge against him. They were trying to trick Jesus. And what's evident when we look at this passage is that these are people who, for the glory of God, didn't give a hoot about this woman. And they didn't care about the law that they cited nor did they care about the holiness of God that they claim had been offended in her act of sin. Why do I say this? Well, there's something that is quite obvious in its absence from this particular passage. Not only are we told that that was their motive, but the law of Moses that they cite doesn't say that they're supposed to bring a woman in, but the law had declared this. If anyone is caught in the act of adultery, in the act of adultery, which required two witnesses, that itself kind of makes it a little awkward, that they are to be brought in. They are to be brought in. So where's the guy? See, the whole thing was a setup not only to capture Jesus, but they didn't give a hoot about this woman, and they didn't care about the fact that the guy was breaking the law, and they certainly didn't care that God's holiness was also offended in this situation. In fact, many scholars believe that not only did they not care, but the guy who had been engaged in the act of adultery with this woman was probably one of them, not necessarily the ones that were there, but one of their type 
or certainly somebody who was a friend of somebody that was there and that they got this guy to seduce this woman, to take her someplace that supposedly was secret where people were uh, hiding out and at just the right moment they could pop out and they got you, they grabbed her and let him escape and brought her in. They didn't give a hoot about the law of God. They used the law of God as their own badge of righteousness so that they could judge others by it and then excuse themselves from their own inconsistencies. They didn't care about God and his holiness. They cared about themselves and this Jesus who was undercutting their self-righteous pretense. And they had to get rid of him and they used this person, this woman, as a pawn in their very trap. That itself, we recognize, is incredibly ugly, but it's the illustration of what graceless religion is. It uses the trappings and the laws and other things of religion in order to justify yourself and to bring condemnation, and it's incredibly, incredibly destructive, dark, and ugly. And yet, one of the things that we need to see here it's not just their hearts against people, people that could be any one of us because all of us have our own sin that is worthy of condemnation. But we need to see in this passage our hearts, which are also like the Pharisees and the scribes who are engaged here. Because it is not just nations and denominations and lunatics, but it's the very nature of fallen man. It's the way of the entire world. These people are simply acting in the way of the world, even though they had every resource of God in their presence. And the ugliness that takes place, it never makes the headlines. It nevertheless is every bit as destructive to individual lives, it takes place in churches across the country, conservative, Bible-believing churches across the country almost any given week. How many young men making decisions are not quite clear out to the standards of how we expect people to behave have come to the church only to be considered to be or, or treated as if they didn't belong because they haven't made the moral choices that meet up to our standards? How many young women have been shamed when they show up to church dressed in an attire that would be appropriate in any office in this country, any workplace in this office, but it doesn't meet the arbitrary standard of people in the church and become the subject of gossip behind their back? and feel ashamed and alienated from the church of Jesus Christ. It is the same thing It's taking place here, and it's the same attitude that brought down the towers that we recognize as being so destructive and so hideous. Lives can be destroyed in very subtle ways when our religion is a religion without grace. And we are as likely to be perpetrators of it as anybody else, and if we're not recognizing that, then we fail to see the warning that God is giving us in this word and the contrast that brings beauty because it is the light against the darkness. It is the light of the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ in contrast to the darkness of our hearts and of graceless religion. And Jesus' response to this is beautiful and it's incredible. Jesus gets trapped, supposedly. There's no way out. See, they wanted to bring a charge to him and they thought that they had him because they're bringing this woman and the law was the law. And so if Jesus had said, you know what, I hate it, but, you know, that's the law. I guess she needs to be stoned. They would have gone straight to the Roman authorities because although the Romans knew that this was the Jewish custom, they weren't real keen on the idea of capital punishment for something like adultery, which most Romans were fine with. In fact, we're going to practice. And so they had made a law that 
Capital punishment, stoning was not allowed, even in the Jewish communities, for the act of adultery. So they would have turned him over and Jesus would have been acting as a vigilante or encouraging vigilanteism against the law of the Romans and the Romans would take care of him. But if he said, cut her a break, especially when all these people were gathered around to hear him teach, his credibility as a man from God would have eroded immediately because he didn't hold to the standards of God's holiness. And so what we see is Jesus begins, listens to the question, he kneels down and he begins scribbling with his finger in the dirt. We get so caught up in, what is it that he was writing? And you hear some people saying, I think he was writing the name of every guy there and the specific things that they had done. And maybe that was the case. Some scholars have said that he just didn't want to dignify their accusation by giving a very quick response that would have seemed to be somewhat defensive. Another scholar suggested that he might have been kind of buying time to just kind of think about this for a moment. And that certainly would not be inconsistent with his character. While he is God, he was also fully human. Whatever is the reason, one thing is really stark here is the, the symbolism. You see, every one of those scribes would have known, every one of those Pharisees would have studied this, is throughout the Old Testament we are told and we know that when they talk about the law of God, it was declared that the law of God was written by the finger of God himself. And so Jesus Christ, who is the lawgiver, sits down, kneels down, and starts using his finger and declaring to everybody that not only is he the one who is the giver of the law, but the one who is the giver of the law is also the only one who is the right interpreter of the law. And then he stands up and offers this brilliant wisdom that we all appreciate What's not stated but is clearly implied is, you're right, she deserves to die. So if one of you who is worthy to bring out this capital punishment, then you go ahead and do it. The one of you who has never sinned, you go ahead and toss that first stone. And he eliminates everyone from contention. And we're told they walk away, beginning with the oldest unto the youngest. And I won't go on to it, but I think that there's an implication there is those who have any sense of their own life which usually takes a lot of failure. It takes time. In this case, there was some wisdom. And even the hardest of hearts was broken by those simple words. And they began to walk away. And the younger ones who might have been a little bit more zealous, they walked away as well. And so there was nobody there. And Jesus then steps down and, and begins to write again. Now, some say that while he was also trying to distract the people from not looking at this woman who was to be condemned, and now he doesn't want the attention on the people who are walking away, we don't know. We know that he's continuing to write with his finger. And then he stands up and he sees this woman and he says, so woman, where are they? Is there anyone to condemn you? And it's a beautiful picture that is the transition of the contrast between the ugliness of gracelessness and the beauty of the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the story and we identify with it and, and we do understand it very well, we also need to recognize that while this story is almost universally appreciated for the moral lesson that it teaches, I think it also causes a lot of confusion that is in our culture and sometimes even in our churches as well. So what I want to do is work through Jesus' interaction with this woman to show what it does say 
and what it doesn't say so that we will have a clearer understanding. But Jesus does speak with this woman. He says, does, is there anybody to condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. He says, then neither do I condemn you. And the grace, the forgiveness, the sense of freedom grips every heart that is reading this, whether you are identifying and saying that could be me or that it's not. You're just seeing it expressed to somebody else. But one of the things that we need to see here is that Jesus in no way is suggesting that there's no such thing as sin. He comes back and says, I will not condemn you. There's nobody here to condemn you. But he's not saying, I don't know what they were talking about. He's acknowledging, and she's acknowledging, that is understood. She is a sinner. And that the wage of sin is death, and she deserved the punishment that they were suggesting. And see, the problem that we have in our culture comes with the idea of judging. Many people look at this passage and assume that the moral precept here, Jesus is challenging these people who would bring condemnation, and they walk away and they think that what this passage is saying is then who are you to judge and go away unless you're perfect you have no place to judge but we misunderstand the whole concept of judging if that's the lesson that we receive from this passage so let me use an illustration here that I, I promise you is totally um, just an illustration just fictitious but imagine I get pulled over for driving a little bit over the speed limit. <laughs> the officer has his radar gun. He clocks me at two miles over the speed limit because, of course, I wouldn't break that law or anything. But, um, and he hands me the ticket and tells me when I go to court. Is he judging me? He's saying, here's the law. Here's what you were doing. They don't mesh. Here is the ticket. Is he judging me? No matter how certain he is that I violated the law, the question is, is he judging me? Now here's the other question. If he is judging me, then why do I need to go see the judge? Or pay them, just declare in advance that the judge is right, whatever it is that he's going to say, and pay the fine. See, the reality is, is the officer isn't judging me. He's using his discernment. He has an awareness of what is right and what is wrong, and he's awareness of the circumstances, and usually he has some hard data that would say these things don't fit, and he is pointing that out to me, but I am not yet judged until the judge declares my guilt or my pardon. And if guilt, then what is the sentence that is to be pronounced? The judgment that we tend to use it is based upon the sentence, not the observance of the violation of a law. And yet we in our culture have been confused by this idea that the whole idea of Christianity is to declare that there is nothing that we are to be able to judge to be out of accord with the law of God. And it's become so confusing that we now have declared that which God clearly says is sin, and we decide there is no sin because, you know, who are we to judge? And in order to not judge one another, we therefore judge God. He must be wrong because these standards that he says apply no longer apply Jesus is not saying there is no sin here he's saying that the people who are no have, or sinners have no right to bring judgment condemnation to bring her to death that that right belongs to God and God alone and Jesus has that right and he says well I have the right to condemn you I will not condemn you 
Now, we could also look at that and assume that there's a universal application, but there's a simple word here that, that's in the interaction between Jesus and this woman that indicates a significant change that makes the whole thing in line with the rest of the teaching of the New Testament. Is there anybody to condemn you? No, Lord. See, that seems to suggest that she had some idea of who Jesus is and how she ought to relate to him. Now, clearly, she recognized that she was a sinner. She had no standing to before this man who had declared himself to be the way, the promise, the fulfillment of all promises. But there's an element of faith as indicated by the fact that she's ascribing to him the title of Lord. And that is significant because everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who is trusting in him alone, it's not a matter of our sin. We are guilty. It's a matter of the fact that he who rightfully could condemn us, does not, because we are justified, declared, pardoned by faith in what he has done, in this case, and what he was about to do, because even in these pages, he's on his way to the cross. And one of the things that we need to take from this particular passage, every one of us this morning, is this, is asking ourselves, what is it in my mind, even if I try to stuff it? What is it in my heart that I try to hide that I don't want to deal with because I am so afraid of the judgment and the condemnation that's going to come, not only from other people, but from God? And whatever that is in your heart, in your mind, if you are trusting in Christ, you need to hear these words. You're in the place of this woman right now. You are guilty. I am guilty. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we hear him declare, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in me. You are free. You are forgiven. You are reconciled. And we need to live in light of that reality. That not that we're good, but that we're guilty. And yet, by faith, we are not condemned, but pardoned. But there's more here. I won't spend a lot of time in it, but I'd be totally negligent if I didn't point this out. There is a beauty in the grace of forgiveness, but grace is for more than forgiveness. And Jesus doesn't end this conversation with a, I will not condemn you either. He continues on and he says, go and sin no more. See, we need to see from this passage, which is also permeating through all of the New Testament, is that grace is about forgiveness, but grace also empowers us to live lives that are holy and in conformity with the very law that we are so inclined to break. And that's what Jesus is telling this woman. He's not saying, oh, forget about it, just go. He's saying, look, you've been forgiven, you've received grace, you've been forgiven, so, but now grace is even more. The grace in your life that comes through faith and the gospel that bears fruit is at work within those who believe and it is enabling us to say no to sin, to die to sin, and to grow in righteousness, to live as becomes the followers of Jesus Christ. Those who believe have a power that you did not have prior to believing. We still blow it, and we still relate to Jesus on the basis of faith and forgiveness that he extends because he secured it for us. But we need to not stop there as if that's all there is. The grace of God within every one of you, the power of his Holy Spirit, tells you that everything that you've been tempted by, everything that you've fallen to, you today and tomorrow can say no and no more and choose to live holy and righteous lives. But we also need to see this. 
because sometimes I believe most of us have spiritual dyslexia. What happens here and the order in which things happen is also true for our lives as well. Grace always precedes law. We see Jesus saying, you, I will not condemn you. You're forgiven. You're not going to be condemned. Now go and sin no more. Grace preceded the law. And if we think that this is just incidental, probably the most glaring to me is we see it in the law when it was given to Moses in the first place because what we run by real quickly is the, the preface to the Ten Commandments where God says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of bondage, out of slavery from Egypt. And now here's the law. And our spiritual dyslexia and my tendency to see the law, I tend to read that as if I do these things, then God will set me free. But grace always precedes the law. And God says, I've already set you free. In Christ, you've been set free by faith. Now, that same faith that set you free and brought forgiveness, it will empower you to keep the law that I have given to you, that you would live holy lives, not only for my glory, but for the joy that you can have when you live life the way I designed it to be lived. People of God, this is a beautiful passage. And it is a full passage. And when we see the contrast between the way the world works and the way that God works, we, there's no doubt where we want to go. But don't miss all of the beauty simply because it's not dark. Because in this picture, we see something that is vividly illustrated. That when the stone would later be rolled away from the tomb, that secured the very promise that we see illustrated here. When the stone was rolled away, the stones were thrown away. We live by that light, and we are sent out to live with one another as well. Because we are told that we do have a responsibility to speak into the lives of one another. Other parts of the scripture, Paul beautifully says this in his letter to the Galatians, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who have believed. If you see somebody is in sin, go and speak to them, but do it gently and also be aware of your own tendency to self-righteousness. God gives us this illustration of a preferred life so that we would have an idea of how we are to live together in a way that is beautiful and joyful and hopeful. May God grant us that, not only in our understanding, but our actual interactions in this church and with our neighbors and around the world. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you and bless you for this word that you've given us. We pray 